they're going to go away having an incredible emotional experience that they're going to want to come back and have again if we can create a space in which they get to talk. You're listening to Your Financial Planner Now What, the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome back for episode 95 with Hannah Moore. Today's guests have worked together to integrate behavioral finance, financial therapy, and financial psychology into the world of financial planning. Dr. Brad Klontz and Derek Lawson join us to help you better understand how people mentally approach their money. This will help you help your clients live financially healthy lives outside of just the dollars and cents. Their research is guiding advisors everywhere to add a deeper level of value to the lives of their clients, and they want to help you do the same. Today's podcast is brought to you by Signature Investors. Signature is a national network of independent advisory firms committed to developing the next generation of financial advisors and creating sustainable businesses to serve clients and their families for years to come. Signature's advisor team model provides a blueprint for establishing a team, including various defined career paths from internships to lead advisor positions. To download this blueprint, visit adviceteams.com forward slash FPA and learn how to start building your team today. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. So first of all, I have to say a huge congratulations on the Montgomery Worcester Award. That is such an honor for you guys and for us to have you guys on the show. So congratulations. Thank you. It's an incredible honor, honestly. It's it's just uh, such an honor. So thank you. So the paper that you won the award on is called Integrating Behavioral Finance, Financial Psychology, and Financial Therapy into the Six-Step six Financial Planning Process. So you talk about behavioral finance, financial psychology, and financial therapy. What the heck is the difference between the three of those? At a broad level, behavioral finance is an application of cognitive psychology to financial behaviors. And it's something that's been based on scientific attempts to understand normal human uh, cognition, perception, and memory. So I'll throw it to you, Dr. Klontz. What is a practical application? Like, what does it look like for uh, behavioral finance, like in practice? Yeah, so behavioral finance is just a fascinating area of study um, that many people have heard of. And and what behavioral finance does, it looks at um, cognitive errors, um, you know, emotional biases. So this is where you hear about the cognitive biases, emotional biases. And um, they're just inherent in all of us. We're born with them. And behavioral finance looks at how this, um, how we approach our money based on this. So a common example is, you know, mental accounting, which is this natural tendency we all have to look at our money and stick it into these basically random buckets or the buckets we create in our head um, where, you know, for example, we'll treat salary money differently than a bonus when you, when in reality, those dollars are worth the same amount of money. Um, but we have different emotion attached to it and we'll, we'll do different things with it. Um, and, and one of the common problems people have is, you know, that bonus bucket has a tendency to be money. We just spend in a much more, um, carefree way than we would our salary. And so behavioral finance looks at these these common ways of looking at things like status quo bias, where we want things to stay the same or resistance to change, uh, you know, loss aversion, where we, want, we don't want to feel the loss. So we'll hold on to a position longer than we should. Uh, so behavioral finance looks at how, how are we wired around money and how does it impact most commonly our investment decisions? So Dr. Klontz, the second piece is financial psychology. So can you tell us, you know, what is financial psychology and, and again, just drawing the distinctions between behavioral finance and financial therapy? 
Right. And, and, you know, Hannah, these are such great questions because they're, you know, I'm not even sure we know exactly what all the distinctions are because there's so many overlaps. Um, but financial psychology really looks at it more on a personal level. Um, so it builds on this basic understanding of how human beings approach financial decisions. And it brings in other aspects of psychology um, to look at things like your developmental history. Like what, what did, how did your family's impact on you? How has that in, influenced your relationship with money and your approach to money or your money scripts, these beliefs we have about money that are passed down to us from our family system? How does um, you know our multicultural psychology how do gender issues interplay with how we are raised around money and how we approach money? And um, so basically financial psychology looks at all these various um, aspects of psychological research and science um, with a focus on, so great, I understand these cognitive biases that normal human beings have, but what about this person sitting in front of me in my office? Um, they're much, much broader than just these biases they have. How does the interplay of their family, their developmental history, uh, et cetera, how does that interplay with what I need to be doing with this person? And we'll get into this later, I'm assuming, in the discussion around um, how do we use this in a very practical way sitting in front of a financial planning client. But it really draws from these other areas of psychology that are um, very much um, value and interest for financial planners. So the final of the three is financial therapy. So Derek, we'll throw that to you. What does what is financial therapy, uh, and what does that look like in practice? I, I will echo what Dr. Kwan said about uh, financial psychology. We're still trying to really figure it out, but I think financial therapy is coming along, and it is essentially the process of of kind of bridging marriage and family therapy with financial planning so that we can have both therapeutic and financial competencies that help people think, feel, and behave differently with money so they can improve their overall well-being through evidence-based practices and interventions. And, and they're doing that by bringing in what is being done in the financial therapy world and what is being done in financial planning. And so it's this this kind of hodgepodge of academics, marriage family therapists, and certified financial planners that are saying, okay, we have you know, marriage and family therapy. They're working with clients that are having familial issues, but it might be tied around or centered around money conflict. And yet they don't have the tools necessary to work with those clients. Financial planners are working with clients, but yet they're finding that, that maybe these clients are stuck. And yet the tools they have, the resources they have, are uh, inadequate to get them to to help these clients become unstuck. And so what they're doing is they're working together, finding ways to intertwine what they know and so they can help their clients further. It's all so fascinating to me. But I want to ask you guys, from looking at the people, from the people who are listening to this podcast, who are like, okay, so this is all interesting, but I'm a financial planner. I tell people if they can retire or not. What would be your response to them about what what is it that financial planners do? And like, is this what financial planners do? So Dr. Klons, I'll throw that to you. Yeah, no, that that's a great question. Like, you know, why are we talking about all this psychology and therapy stuff? You know, I'm a financial planner. I sit with people come to me with financial problems or at least goals. And my job is to advise them and help them come up with a plan and help, you know, help them ex execute it. Well, you know, you don't have to be practicing for very long. Uh, maybe it's your second or third client that you're sitting in front of where you'll run across something where, you know, you're giving them very sound advice or you're seeing them engage in some type of like self-destructive behavior. Like a, a common example is, you know, an older client who is 
seems to be giving money to one of their children who perhaps is abusing that money or keeps asking for more or somehow financially dependent on them. That, that's a common one that people run into or making bad investment decisions, et cetera. Um, and you'll, you'll give them advice like, hey, you know, you probably shouldn't be doing that. If you're brave enough to confront them, you'll do that. And then lo and behold, they don't do what you tell them to do. Like, why are they not doing this? This is, a, this is, they came to me for my expertise, my advice. I'm, I'm suggesting what they do and they're not doing it. And that's where um, the financial psychology, financial therapy, behavioral finance information is so valuable to try to help understand why a client would not make a behavioral change that is clearly in their best interest, understand why clients have a tendency to engage in self-destructive financial behaviors, um, to just understand why, what's happening. And then secondly, to draw from this whole body of work around tools that I as a financial planner can use. I'm not doing therapy with my client, but I can borrow from the um, all the research and knowledge and tools and techniques that a therapist might use to help somebody uh, you know, basically shift behavior. For me, I was a young planner, and what really got me into the research was because, as Dr. Kwan said, the second or third client that I worked with, I realized they're paying me all of this money for a financial plan, and a year later, they haven't done a single thing, or maybe one of the recommendations, the most easy one. Um, so why? What is going on? What is, what is the behavior? What is their thought processes? And... That's really where I found the, the financial psychology, found uh, behavioral finance and financial therapy. It, it allowed me to have this, this network of individuals as well as the, all of these tools that are ac typically academically uh, supported um, empirical tools that have research backing to them or are starting to have research backing to them. And, and so these are things that are being validated and are becoming more valid, more reliable. And so these are tools that I want to use with my clients. And so I agree that it's, it's really a step further. So you might be working with a client, but how can you provide further value? And how do you know what you're providing, the recommendations you're making? How do you know those are valid without fully understanding your client before you get to before you start making those recommendations. And so I, I think drawing from behavioral finance, financial psychology, and financial therapy, it, it allows you to better and more fully know your client before you, you implement recommendations with them. This whole conversation is making me really think about what is the purpose of financial planning? Like, is the purpose just to give good recommendations? Is the purpose to help our clients implement change? What would you guys say is along those lines, what is the purpose of financial planning? You know, for me, I, I think it's um, for me, it's it's really helping a client um, improve their overall financial health, and that has multiple components. It's not just you know getting the right insurance for them, um, the right sort of retirement planning, the right investment vehicles, all of which are critically important. But I think ultimately, for me, I'm 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 looking to help increase that clients' sense of financial security, their sense of financial satisfaction. I, I want them to, to feel comfortable 
not just have an estate plan, but feel really comfortable about it and, and talk about those recommendations with their, their kids, which is, a, which is something that we often fail to, to actually assist them in doing. Um, and also help, I want them to have a, a good relationship with their kids, their family, their spouse around money. And obviously that's the entry point in my work as a financial planner, which I do do, um, you know, where I have clients where I'm strictly doing financial planning, but those are the elements that I'll bring into. I, w- I want to look at that person as a whole person, um, looking, coming at it more from the financial life planning perspective. It goes back to one of the readings that, that I first read as a doctoral student. And it was, uh, this reading from Trotman that said that money is a major concern of nearly every American, yet there remains minimal discussions around it. It is still one of the largest taboos in our society, and it is, and it is a serious psychological problem. And for me, financial planning is a sense of helping the clients have a state of being healthy, happy, and free from worry. That is, how can we increase their, uh, the client well-being? And, and by client, I mean client's well-being and their familial well-being. And well-being isn't just one thing. It's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a mixture and it pulls in. There's this relational aspect. There's a psychological aspect of well-being. There's a physical aspect of well-being and there's a financial aspect of well-being. And I want my clients to be the best selves of them. And so it is this holistic approach of helping the client. And so it's not just the financial piece because I'm just looking at the financial piece and I'm, and we're not looking at the physical, the psychological or the relational piece. Am I, am I really fully able to help my, my clients? Well, I think it's such an interesting discussion. And I, I know I have this conversation with a lot of, especially new planners, is what is financial planning versus just financial advice? And I think this is really a good distinction between you know, what is truly financial planning? In terms of what is financial planning, I think it's, it's something that each of us have, have to define based on our, our own sort of uh, you know, values and passion for what, what's bringing us into the field. For many of the, you know, the students that I work with and um, planners, and certainly with my own clients, it, it really is looking at that, that individual from a holistic perspective. Another aspect is that you know, the number one stressor in the lives of Americans is money. And when you're under financial stress, and these are these, this is everybody. These are people who actually are doing well financially. You know, stress, financial stress sort of cuts across socioeconomic lines. Um, and you know, the more money you have, the more some people will worry about that money. And so when you're when you're um, dealing with this financial stress, which has a very real negative impact on your emotional health, your physical health, everything. Um, so who do you go to see to help? sort of heal and, and work through that financial stress and find solutions. And I think financial planners um, are, you know, the physician of choice in terms of financial stress. And for many people, they, they don't really have other advisors in their lives or other support um, people. So financial planners are very well positioned to play a critical, um, influential role in the lives of their clients. Absolutely. In, in reading through your paper, one of the things, you know, especially as it relates to this podcast, I mean, it's you're a financial planner, now what? Um, so a lot of the people listening, um, studying for the CFP, just took their CFP or, you know, really figuring that out. And you talk about how reading from your paper, financial planners have used a six-step, you know, process for, you know, the CFP process um, successfully for decades. However, the process has failed to take into account psychological aspects of money. I think this is a great question. So once you 
sit for your CFP, once you take your CFP, once you're a financial planner, like what's next? How do you better yourself as a professional? I think there's there's a handful of ways, and I'll let Brad talk about a few, but I'll talk about one. And and so it, I think Brad touched on it absolutely uh, beautifully there, and, and said that you really have to define what financial planning is for yourself. So for some people, I, I do I do believe that maybe the CFP they get that that's great and that's all they want. But for those that want to go further, and I think that really want to challenge challenge themselves and and really look holistically into financial planning, they're going to need to take coursework that includes psychological aspects of uh, it's going to be able to better train them to understand the psychological aspects of money. And one of the ways in which they can do that is Kansas State University's financial therapy certificate. They have a, a four or five course financial therapy certificate that's going to touch on the research around financial therapy, uh, money and relationships. Brad mentioned how money is a, a uh, uh, one of the top stressors for Americans. The American Psychological Association has said that for many years in a row now, and that leads to a whole host of, of different uh, financial complications. Um, but the financial therapy certificate—it's a course where, where or a program where students can do it online from wherever. So you don't have to be in Manhattan, Kansas to do that. And they're going to train you a little bit on behavioral finance, a little bit about money and relationships and, and kind of uh, uh, systemic uh, therapy modalities. And then a little bit around the research that's going on and some of the tools that, uh, that have been developed over the course of the last five to 10 years around financial therapy. Yeah, I, you know, I want to echo um, Kansas State's program, and um, there are a growing number of of programs and studies and classes in this area. At, at Creighton University, we we have a certificate in financial psychology, behavioral finance, um, as well as an MBA emphasis in that area. And I think at you know most conferences nowadays, at least the good ones, if you ask me, <laughs> Hannah, are are incorporating um, you know some some breakout sessions that look at client relationship. Um, I know the CFP board just released a, an edited book called Client Psychology, which is a pretty valuable resource. And also, I think, a, um, um, you know, sort of a, a testimony to how the CFP board is seeing this as a very critical and important aspect in the training of financial planners, because ultimately it comes down to we're dealing with human beings and we're dealing with their behaviors. And um, the CFP curriculum, I mean, it's just an absolute fundamental knowledge base and then which is fabulous and so you'll have the right answers or at least you'll know where to find the right answers to financial planning questions and dilemmas and and problems but how do you facilitate a client's moving through those various stages the financial planning process keeping them on track what do you do when you give a client a piece of really solid financial advice and they resist that advice and they they start arguing the reasons why they don't want to do that or the downside to doing that what do you do in that moment as a planner um, and if you haven't gotten to that experience, you're going to have it. You're going to have that experience. And so that's where I think this body of knowledge can be incredibly helpful to um, help you conceptualize, just for example, client resistance to change and the normal response to that resistance 
actually creates more resistance and leaves clients to be less likely to change. And so just knowing that, for example, that, you know, for example, you're, you're suggesting that a client get a will um, or, an, you know, a state plan. And they start to give you the reasons, well, you know, I, I don't really have time to do that or that's not really important to me right now. What do you do in that moment? Because if you go with your natural response, which is to then argue all the reasons why they need to get a will, all the research shows that that person is actually less likely to get a will than if they had never talked to you to begin with. Um, just as an example of, of a skill set um, and just to, to not you know, not to leave the listeners hanging, <laughs> I'll tie, we'll share, share with you. In that moment, what the research shows, there, there's actually nine different types of techniques you can use. Um, but one of the things, that, and probably the most effective thing, is to just reflect, start doing some reflecting back. So I understand that getting a will is doesn't seem important to you at all in this at this time. Can you tell me more about that? And getting the client to talk through some of those reasons why they're um, resisting doing that. Um, and all the research shows by shifting to that technique versus doubling down on the reasons why they should do it, it significantly increases the chances that that client will make change in a positive direction because ultimately we all have a part of us that wants to change and a part of us that doesn't. And it's that ambivalence. And so the more that when we run into that resistance, that we can take the side of getting the client to do the talk in the direction of change, the more likely they are to change. So this is just one example that comes from the motivational interviewing research in, in psychology that we can use in a financial planning context, and you're not performing therapy on the client, but you're having a, a well, you know, essentially a therapeutic conversation um, that decreases that client's resistance to change and makes it more likely that they're going to engage in the behaviors that we want them to engage in. Well, one of the things that I appreciated so much about your article and why I think everybody, um, if you haven't read it yet, you definitely need to go read it. I will have a link in the show notes for it is that you get really practical on the step-by-step -step process and what planners can do and the skill sets that we can learn um, right now in order to help be better planners and really incorporate these ideas. So if it's okay with you guys, we can just go step-by-step -step through the CFP process and talk about kind of what you guys have identified as really integrating um, these three areas into our work as financial planners. Sounds great. So the first step, establishing and defining the relationship with a client. Um, so you talk about in practice, establishing rapport um, and listening well. So Derek, do you want to take this and tell, like, kind of dive in a little bit deeper about what does that mean? Like establishing that rapport and listening well. The establishing rapport, that is something that, that it should be first noted that it's not just something that happens at step one. This establishing rapport is continuously happening throughout the entire client engagement. Um, from the minute you first interact with them all the way through you, you always need to be, every time you see them, you're always establishing rapport. And you're doing that through really a whole host of ways. And I think it's kind of easier. We talk about it here. Uh, we talk about it really in the step one because it's kind of an easier way to implement it. But it, it, just know that establishing rapport, joining with the clients, you're, you're always continuing to build that relationship. And so it's a never-ending step. And then the other piece is we want to know, okay, so you're establishing the report. It's always good to, to thank them for coming in, but we want to know what is it that we need to accomplish today that'll make them, the clients, feel like our work together has been useful. And every time we meet, 
Are we making progress? What do we need to do? And so I think from my perspective, and we all might have various perspectives, but from my perspective, what I've seen that seems to be working well and what I've seen in my work with marriage and family therapy uh, uh, um, practitioners is that we might have sort of a schedule, but asking the question at the end of the session today, how do you know that our meeting's been successful? That's going to allow the client to really identify the key pieces that are bothering them. But what is it that's bringing them in? Why are they even meeting with you in the first place? And so it's an open-ended question to allow them to start to define uh, and really write the agenda. And so I'm big on not really having an agenda for my meetings. I want the clients, I have a sort of agenda, but I want the clients to lead. And, and really that comes from that postmodernism approach, maybe a a solution-focused therapy type modality, but I want the clients to lead. I, it's allowing the client to be the expert in their lives, and we're just going to continue to establish that report by a report by joining with the client continuously, um, and then listening well. And, and so, Brad just talked about reflective listening. So you know that's really that concerted effort to discover what someone's saying if they're. If they, we want to make sure that uh, uh, we want to avoid asking the questions um, instead of, so we want to use reflective listen, reflective statements because reflective statements are less likely to evoke resistance from the clients. And, and that's what Brad had just, he just gave a great example of how if you state why they need and why it's so important, why they absolutely need an estate plan, they're less likely to do it than when they were before they met you. And so, what reflective listening is doing, it's allowing the client, so the client states, uh, the client will say something to you and you just reflect that back to them because it's going to allow the client to think, okay, is that really what I said? And is that what I mean? And they might nod their head yes, or they may reflect and say, no, that's not what I meant and restate it. And so it's really important to, to be attentive and, and, and listen well. And and there's seven steps to kind of listening well. And you know, be, like I, I think I just mentioned before, before we tackle my agenda, tell me more about what concerns you most today. Listen, summarize, and by summarizing, you get into the reflective listening because you're going to summarize what they're stating and bring it back. It allows that client to understand whether or not they're making their point. It's okay to ask questions. Is there anything that you missed? Is there anything... Did I understand that correctly? And then ultimately, we want to summarize what was said in the session. And I think uh, really in step one, that's kind of summarizing what the client's there for today and, and, um, and going from there. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. So the first one, and again, I'm certainly not have your guys' expertise, but I was at um, a sudden money conference um, a couple months ago. And they did role playing. So we were the clients and they gave us, you know, several page, like understanding it, you're the scenario and like you like take on the client and you go into the meeting or whatever. Uh, but what stood out to me so much and kind of to your point, Derek, about establishing that rapport and like what's on your mind today. I had one fact I could not get over. And it was the only thing I could think about the entire meeting as I was a client. And at the end of the meeting, they were like, okay, well, what did you think? And I'm like, you guys tried to dive into all this really great stuff, but like I couldn't even I couldn't even think about it. Like it, it was just such a shocking experience for me in, in that role of how important that is just to ask our clients what's on their mind. Yeah, you know, I, I think Derek summarized it beautifully. And 
for me, it's it's literally, um, it's figuratively and literally setting your agenda aside and being willing to do that. So of course you have an agenda coming into a meeting. I mean, there's a reason why you're meeting with the client. Um, and literally, if you can imagine me sitting down with a clipboard, because I, I have my pen here and there's this data I need to gather from you, but I'm literally, as we're sitting down, I'm at literally gonna set my agenda aside for a minute and I'm gonna say, you know, so there's some stuff that I want to cover with you today that we need to get moving on. But before I do that, and you can just picture me setting it aside, I, you know, I just want to find out like, what's, what's the most pressing thing? What's on your mind right now? Mm -hmm. And just creating some space because to the, to the idea of establishing rapport and, and helping that client really feel um, connected with and understood um, something, by the way, that robo advisors are decades away from being able to pull off as well as Derek <laughs> can, um, or I can, uh, or you can is, is setting that aside and, and really looking for that connection. Um, because quite often, you know, we're, as we're preparing for a meeting, we're, th we're actually nervous. We're, we're thinking about the things we need to do and I need to get all this data. I need to cover these things. And um, we're not creating space. And if we do create some space to just set it aside, what's bringing you in today? What, what's, you know, what's top of your mind today? What, what do we really need to talk about today so that you can feel great about this meeting and just creating that space. Um, and for the advisors that I train and work with, and even for myself, like for those meetings, I actually try to do my best to spend 75% um, of my time listening uh, just as, as sort of a, a metric and 25% of the time talking. Um, because the big irony here is that we think that clients are going to feel really close to us and know us really well if we talk a lot. Okay. <laughs> and it's actually the opposite. They're going to go away having an incredible emotional experience that they're going to want to come back and have again, if we can create a space in which they get to talk. Well, what was so shocking to me when I read your article? I mean, I like highlighted it, underlined it, put some stars next to it. You, you say, um, you, you noted that listening is such an underdeveloped skill for most people that just being in the presence of a skilled listener can be a transformational experience for clients. I was like, whoa, like me just listening well can be transformational. Like that, that was a pretty shocking thing for me to read. Yeah, absolutely. And also what an unusual experience. <laughs> like nobody listens to anybody. And so, um, cause we're all typically we're thinking about a rebuttal or where we're going to go next with our conversation. So many of us are just struggling to be heard. And, um, that if you can actually provide for that client, the experience of being heard, you're going to stand out as, um, a very unusual experience in their life, um, even even compared to their you know spouses and people closest to them, um, it's really tough to listen, and that's why it, you know they have entire training programs on how to become a good listener because it goes against our natural impulse, especially if we're nervous. From our perspective, or from my perspective, and, and some of the training I've done, remember that clients do hold the answers, and, and, and it's okay as a professional to not necessarily hold all the answers. You can be that guide. And so just remember as a practitioner to understand that you don't always need to be right. And so listen, be, be comfortable, listen. And the other piece with this is being comfortable with silence too. It's very, very hard to just sit in a room when there's silence, but allow that silence because it's going to allow the client to kind of think. If you're asking the open-ended questions, you're summarizing through reflective, reflective listening and reflective statements and the client needs some silence, be comfortable. You don't have to be talking 100% of the time. So the second step to the CFP financial planning process is gathering client data. 
And so you talk about motivational interview and motivational interviewing, and we've talked a little bit about this already. And then in practice, these open-ended prompts um, and making affirmative statements. So Dr. Klontz, what can you kind of expound on that? Just as an example around the open-ended prompts, um, this is an example we talk about, but I want you to really think about sitting in front of a client um, or, or being on the receiving end. You know, when I ask you, when do you want to retire? You're probably going to give, think about a certain age, eh, 65, 55, please help me retire at 55 at my brilliant financial advisor. <laughs> um, that's a very different question. And it, it's a close ended question. They're, they're going to give a, either a yes, no response or a, a certain number. And that's the end of the question. What a very different question. Um, how would this feel? Describe your ideal retirement. Wow. So. I'm going in all sorts of places mentally in my mind when I hear that question. I'm, I'm thinking about who I'll be with, where you know, where I, where we'll be, what I'll be doing. It's just a very qualitatively different experience. And I'll probably even mention what year I want to retire because I'm describing that for you. And so part of that, um, you know, it it establishes rapport, but it also really allows for that client to paint a picture of of what their goals really are. I mean, like the goal to retire at age 65 is a goal, but if you really want to find out what that person's goal is, you're going to have them describe their ideal retirement to you because isn't it so much more than just a, a year? I mean, it, it's an entire um, qualitative experience. And so whenever we can, using those open-ended prompts throughout our interviews and, and um, you know, when we're gathering data, we're going to get a much richer feeling and a, and a much richer understanding of what the client is doing. And not only that, the client's going to feel, um, have a, a very emotionally positive experience when we're doing that. Again, they'll be heard, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and then, you know, using, we talk also about, you know, using um, affirmative statements and and really looking at reinforcing the things that a client's doing in a positive light, acknowledging their strengths, and just being purposeful around that and, and just making a, a note uh, and a point to, um, for, for many of us, when we're approaching the financial planning, we're looking for holes and to fill holes. And so just making some mental space for ourselves to acknowledge, wow, it looks like, you know, you've really got your estate plan in order. And I got to tell you, most people that I run across just aren't nearly at that space. So, um, wow, congratulations for that. Or I might even expand on it and say, you know, what, what got you to do that? Like, how did you make, make that choice and get you to where you are and to allow them to talk about their strengths. And we'll also learn a lot about our clients when we make space for that. So the third step, we'll just kind of keep trucking through these, um, is to analyze and evaluate the client's financial, um, status. And so this seems pretty, you know, this is getting much more into the nitty gritty number side, if you would. Um, and you talk about in practice, what does this look like? Um, accessing financial beliefs and behaviors, you know, measuring financial health, um, measuring financial anxiety. So Derek, can you expand and kind of talk more about what that looks like in practice? I'm going to go personal real quick. From from personal perspective, I don't really like to get into the numbers until I get to know the client. And so I like to do this in practice. I want to know their financial place and behavior. And I, there's two uh, tools that I really use, particularly particularly one, um, and that's the Klontz Money Script Inventory. And there's a revised version of that. I, I have been historically using the Klontz Money Script Inventory, but uh, Dr. Klontz and, and a few others, Dr., I believe his, his father, uh, Dr. Britt, Dr. Luternow, and uh, um, another individual, 
they initially created the Quants Money Script inventory. It was a 50, I believe it's 51, correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, but 51 items that uh, measured four different uh, money scripts. And, and th those money scripts, uh, to me, those are these irrational behaviors. That it it's kind of these, these underlying assumptions and beliefs around money that uh, may or may not be true, likely or only partially true. And, and these are things that money scripts or money behaviors are things that were developed in childhood and, and we've kind of unconsciously followed them uh, throughout our adulthood. And so uh, most often there are these, these financial flashpoints that we can recall like something from our early life, maybe as a child, maybe you remember uh, your, your mother saying that they didn't have enough money to pay bills. Um, and so you couldn't buy or you couldn't get something at the grocery store or you, you fell on hard times. You remember having to, to um, maybe go to the food pantry uh, as, a, as a young child uh, or, or some other just uh, financial flashpoint, as we call it, that uh, um, helps you associate money with some sort of powerful uh, uh, behavior. And so there's four different money scripts and money, there's money avoidance, um, money worship, money status, and then money vigilant. And, and they're not necessarily negative or positive in any way, but kind of the money vigilant time tend to bend uh, more the, the financial planning aspects that they might save, save more. We can go into that a little bit later, or I certainly allow Dr. Quantz to talk more about money scripts if he wants to uh, on in depth, but assessing kind of where they are and where they came from. And, and what I like to do is have both clients fill out a money script inventory in my office with them. And they do that. It doesn't take long. And then I go through and score it. And then we kind of we, we score. So maybe a client is a, a money avoider and, and their spouse is maybe more aligned with money worship. And you can be more than one of the scripts, but then we have a conversation. So we go through each of those individual aspects together with both partners. And we say, okay, you, you scored high for money worship here. And here's what the, the particular uh, sentence was that you scored. And does that sound like you? And, and oftentimes that's where clients have these aha and, and sometimes the spouse, actually often the spouse learns something about their significant other in that meeting by going through this, we're going through line by line saying, okay, you know, you scored high here is, does this sound like you? And then you turn to the spouse, does that sound like your partner? And they have that conversation and it really opens up the doors. They learn sometimes there's tears. But uh, it, it really helps me assess how they believe around money. Or let me rephrase that. It helps me assess their beliefs around money and the behavior that they might have going forward in our relationship in terms of spending or saving. Uh, if they're vigilant, maybe, maybe they have $5 million and that's plenty for them to retire, but they're so tight with their money because, because they're afraid it might go away. They, they have this issue with not spending enough, even though they're okay. And then I want to assess their financial health. And there's a financial health, um, uh, the financial health, it's the Klontz Brit financial health scale. And that's going to measure four different areas. It's, it's their global uh, financial health, their money disorders, risk planning and self-care. And we, we analyze that and kind of get a sense of 
where they are. And then I use a seven item financial anxiety tool that uh, uh, Dr. Archuleta and a few others created. And that's going to tell me whether or not they have high anxiety or not. It, you can't really um, diagnose with that, but it's just a tool for me to say, okay, you know, maybe they are money, they have money worship script and high financial anxiety. And maybe there, there's something that we need to talk about before we even get into the numbers. And so that's why I'm using these tools and, and where we came, because we're doing data collecting and sure financial numbers and, and the financial side of things are important. But I also want to know what's going on with the clients. And I want both clients there to be able to have that conversation and understand because sometimes that's the very first time both clients are even talking anything about money with each other. Yeah. And I want to mention too that, you know, a big part of what we're advocating here is integrating some of these other assessments that look at um, financial psychology, behavioral finance uh, into the normal financial planning process. And it, and it sounds like Derek's doing that directly in his practice. And we do that in our firm also. And I, I will point out that um, there was an article that, article that came out in March 2018, where um, Michelle Bagina, Jessica Hickingbottom, Elaine Luttrell, um, Dr. Megan McCoy, um, I, I helped with it. But it, it's on identifying and understanding clients' money scripts. And it's actually how they are, um, how they and we are integrating using this with the standard financial planning client. Because one of the concerns I think that uh, some financial planners will have is is back to your point, Hannah, around like, well, well hey, I'm a financial planner. I sh I'm not a psychologist. You know, I'm not a therapist. Um, but there are really seamless ways to integrate this into the client experience. And it's also really fun. Like people actually love to learn about their financial psychology. And, and you know, the, people love to take, you know, tests in Cos Cosmopolitan magazine or whatever, where you get to assess, you know, your personality. And, and these things are based on research. So there, you know, if you come out high, for example, in money avoidance, I mean, research shows that you're likely to self-sabotage. So you're probably going to have lower income, lower net worth as a result, um, or engage in other sort of self-destructive financial behaviors. So the higher that scale goes, the more likely it's something that is of interest to the financial planner and the client. And so it offers an opportunity to um, strengthen a relationship, give, it, give that client a more holistic experience, and to, as Derek said, really understand them because um, this is a relationship that you'll plan on having for years, um, if not decades. And so to understand that, um, for example, somebody who's really money vigilant might have a hard time shifting from, you know, uh, the, the saving stage to the spending stage in retirement to know that ahead of time, you can do a lot of work in prepping that client and doing perhaps some additional prep around. Um, okay. Now, so remember, uh, you've been saving your whole life. So how are we, how are you going to feel about starting to take distributions, um, every month? And, and for, for planners who've been doing this and have had that experience, that could be a really, really difficult shift for somebody who's really money vigilant and has been really dedicated to saving their whole life. You know, you bring up such a good point about planners and then the therapy side of it. And where does, where's the line that we need to be aware of like where we don't step beyond what we're trained to do or what, you know, stepping into that therapy realm. Yeah. For me, like the, the first line is the you know that feeling in the pit of your stomach that you're in over your head? <laughs> That's probably the first line. <laughs> um, it, to pay attention to that, right? And um, just to honor that because chances are you probably shouldn't keep going there if, if you're having that. And then, you know, for me, because I, I do 
I am a you know licensed clinical psychologist as well as a financial planner, and I don't mix those two worlds. Okay, I, very clearly, I'm not going to be somebody's therapist and their financial planner. That would be unethical, for one thing. Um, and so for me, it's it's you know the the line really comes to if you're going to try to treat a money disorder, you you shouldn't do that as a financial planner. So you know if you run across somebody who um, has like a really severe depression around their money, or they're a hoarder, like um, or compulsive shopper or, you know, have a gambling addiction, those are the situations in which you're going to be looking to refer to another professional. And part of your work with a client would be, um, you know, encouraging them to, to get some additional help for those really, you know, self-destructive clinical type disorders that, you know, you shouldn't treat. Or, or to Derek's point, somebody who's a little bit anxious around money, that's one thing. Somebody who um, has a, what looks like an anxiety disorder, um, is, is another matter. And, and the training program, you know, at Kansas state at Creighton, and I'm sure there'll be others developing part of that training process is, you know, where, where is that line? Um, and what, what is, what are the money disorders? What do they look like? And when I run across one, what should I do? As a financial planner, you often hear where you go and you network with CPAs and other CFPs, maybe some insurance agents and estate planning attorneys. Well, my line of work, I also like to network with licensed marriage and family therapists and clinical psychologists because I feel like that's a valuable uh, connection. And if I, if I have that pit in my stomach, I know maybe I need to refer. And I have those, those people where I'm comfortable referring to and that they're comfortable with accepting people from a financial planner. Because not everyone, especially in the LFT world, at least from my experience, may not be comfortable around money. And so, so having those conversations and, and laying the groundwork to establish relationships with, with other individuals that we may not necessarily think of from a financial planning setting is important. So keeping on the steps within the CFP program, um, step four is developing and pre- presenting the financial planning recommendations. So Dr. Klontz, do you want to talk about some of the tools and and really how we can be incorporating this this site? psychology and therapy and behavioral finance into that step of the process. Yeah. So, so, you know, you've, you've put all this work into identifying, you know, doing your measurements, analyzing their financial situation. Um, and then, then you're going to sit down and present your financial plan. And this is where you've, you've, um, you know, applauded them for their successes on some of these things they've already done. And you've also identified some areas of weakness. Now, always remember that around any given change in our life, you know, think about, you know, whether or not you need to go to the gym more. <laughs> um, I know I do. Um, you know, there's part of you that really wants to do it. And there's another part of you that's dragging it's your feet. And so when you're approaching a client, um, the research shows that about um, one out of five people are in what we would call the action phase around change. Now, the action phase means that you're ready to go. So all you need is somebody to sort of prompt you by saying, hey, you should do this. And boom, you're off to the gym. Of course, I will take that advice and move on it. So that's one out of five. So the rest of us um, around any given issue at any given time, you know, we're just not quite ready to do it. Um, and so when you're presenting that financial plan, you're going to run across that ambivalence and you're going to run across some resistance to change most likely, because very often people will come to you with one agenda item in mind. They're, they're seeking out a financial planner for a reason. And then you've identified five other things they need to do. 
And um, just understanding that the whole concept of resistance is critical at this point. So there's that part of you that wants to change. There's that part of you that doesn't. Hannah, I like to talk about um, my wife when I explain this, where she'll come to me and say, hey, you know, Brad, I'm trying to decide between choice A and choice B. And I will sit there and listen very intently and because I'm a good listener, right? And I want to hear side A. Tell me about side B. And then I will um, make the mistake of saying, I think you should do point A, you know, I think you should take, you know, action A. And invariably, she then starts to argue about, you know, the benefits of B, because I have now externalized that ambivalence and I've picked a side. And so when you're sitting with a client who's ambivalent around change, and they're telling you the reasons why they're not ready to cut off their child financially, um, you have to be very, very aware and, and pay attention to when any of those pieces of advice elicit resistance, because that is a cue to you to stop doing what you're, what you want to do, which is argue the reasons why they should make a change. And that's where you will shift into using one of those other techniques. I'd mentioned, um, you know, a simple reflection. Another technique would be to do an amplified reflection where you would, you would actually sort of turn up the heat on that resistance and you would say, um, so you don't, you know, for example, somebody's like, well, I'm not really ready to do a will. And then I might amplify that by saying, so you don't really see um, any value in doing a will. Okay. Now the client's response is very likely to be like, well, I'm not saying that I, I see value in it. And then I would then say, well, tell me what would be value about it. What do you mean there's value in it? Okay, so very subtle, but what's happened is I have now created a situation and when that client's going to start telling me all the reasons why they should get a will. It's very, very subtle, but if I wasn't paying attention to that moment of resistance, I would have missed that opportunity and I probably would have made it less likely for them to get a will. And that's the shocking thing about all this research is when we're confronting a resistant client, they're less likely to take action. So in, in some aspects, I'm actually harming that person by not paying attention to their resistance. Um, so at this phase, you know, there are other things um, that are important, of course, but really being able to identify those points of resistance and then shifting our technique to increase the likelihood that they take action. And it's so interesting because that really is, I know we've talked a little bit about this, but that's how you kind of present yourself to the client. Like that's just a normal interaction with a client, I mean, that can extend far beyond just this meeting. I mean, that's just how you show up to meetings. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also this, this stuff is fabulous techniques to use if, if you're married or <laughs> if you have any other kids. I mean, this is not <laughs> conducting therapy. This is using these um, tools and techniques to um, basically shift behavior or decrease resistance or help people discover more about themselves. Um, and so a great place to practice, by the way, is, is when you go home um, around, you know, these types of situations. And it really becomes just the way that you're working with clients. And so much of the financial psychology stuff that we're integrating here, the client never really knows they're doing it. All they know is that um, they're having an incredible experience talking with you and you're really helping them move forward or, around their goals. The fifth step of financial planning is implementing those recommendations. So Derek, I'll throw that to you. What does it look like um, from your perspective? What are the tools that we can use to help implement these, um, implement in practice? Step four and step five in this realm, I think, kind of go together in a sense. Brad talked about challenging the status quo. I know we had put uh, put that in step five, but it really is kind of step four, step five. So definitely challenging the status quo, just like Brad had had discussed. Because, um, but then the next piece is it's important to help them kind of summarize what's been done. Uh, you know, so we, we we've 
presenting the plan and, and we're trying to implement it, but we want to, in a sense, re-clarify the goals and, and the client's you know, best hopes. And so in giving homework in order to help set the homework, by asking the client to identify what one small thing they might be able to accomplish, either tomorrow, next, this week, next week, the next month, or in between meetings, depending on how often you meet with your clients, in order to help them achieve their goals, that's going to allow them to have that intrinsically motivated goal. And, and so what then you're doing is you're, you're summarizing the meeting and you're assigning tasks, but you're assigning tasks based on the client's responses. And so it's important to give homework and the homework pieces, it comes from like cognitive behavior therapy, uh, as well as motivational interviewing is big on, on homework. But it's helping the client reinforce and maintain what's been discussed in the meetings. And so summarize what went on, ask them open-ended questions about small things that they can accomplish based on the, the meeting that just happened. And then put that in writing for both you and them. Make it a checklist. Make it something simple that they can do so they can check it off, so they can see the progress between now and the next meeting or whenever the goal is due. But... Uh, and it might be simply to call an estate planning attorney. It's a simple one, but if that's what they've identified, and maybe after you're, you're, you might have challenged the status quo, as Brad discussed, it might be that you ask what's one small thing that you could do tomorrow to ensure one of your goals is, is met. And it might be that the client responds, I could call one of the estate planning attorneys that you've recommended I, I reach out to. And then write that down. But then if you, as so motivational interviewing, also uh, discusses the importance of the uh, facilitator or the counselor, in our case, the, the financial planner, the importance of having them also write down their goals and their tasks between now and the next meeting and show the client that it is a team. They have their, their tasks that they need to do, their homework. We have our tasks or our homework that we need to do. The other piece is there's some research around the word homework and that has a negative connotation. I know we touch on it in the article. I'm pretty sure we do. But, uh, and so oftentimes using the word tasks or experiments or, or, or uh, checklist of items to do something other than homework um, might be beneficial. But, it, but it, the main point is it's important to summarize, end with a summary, identify tasks to complete, and make it, I think, in a bullet point or in check checkbox type of way and show both the client's goals as well as your goals. The sixth step is to monitor um, the ongoing monitoring process. So Dr. Klontz, what does that look like in practice um, in integrating all of these um, various lines of research? Yeah. So, you know, in, in terms of monitoring, this is where um, you're basically going to be the plan's been given and then it's it's check ins on how both you, how you're doing with your components of helping them. If let's say you're doing your asset management or whatever, um, and then the various steps that they're going to be moving on, which, you know, again, if you've done if you had a few clients, you know, it doesn't all happen in a week. Um, and so a couple of the tips that we we thought are, are great to mention and talk about and think about in this phase are um, inoculating people against some of these cognitive biases 
processes. So for example, the disposition effect, which um, is where we have a tendency because we want to feel a sense of accomplishment and pride that if we have a winning investment, we have a tendency to want to sell it. Um, and we have a, a tendency to not want to sell losing investments. And so one of the things that we advocate is, is um, talking to people about that ahead of time. Um, so I'm going to educate a client and say, hey, you know, um, as as we're moving forward, I just want to let you know there's some common um, biases that we run into. And sometimes I'll give this to clients in a tip sheet with several of these biases, and I'll talk about another one in a second. Um, but, you know, just understand that you're going to have, we're all going to have a, a natural tendency to want to, um, you know, sell a position that, that is doing well. And we're going to have a natural tendency to want to hold on to something that isn't doing well um, because we want to seek pride and avoid feelings of regret. Um, sometimes we'll also, um, you know, inoculate and we do suggest having this conversation around the herd mentality. And especially for investors who are new to markets, um, actually this affects everybody but um, who may not have seen it firsthand. But, you know, what is the herd mentality? Well, you know, when we see people moving in a certain direction, we have a tendency to feel a sense of fear or anxiety that we're missing out or a sense of excitement. Um, and so just understand that, you know, in our firm and with the clients we work with, that we're not going to be chasing the latest fad because by, by the time you've heard of it, it's, it's very likely likely a bubble. And um, so we're going to want to avoid doing that. And actually, um, you know, Warren Buffett, as an example, is known to be um, a contrarian. And he, he actually has a tendency to do the opposite of what the herd does. And so for, you know, for clients that I'm working with, and this might be something, by the way, I'm saying to a client. Um, so for clients that we work with who will come to us with this this new idea, and it seems to be a lot of energy in that direction, culturally or in the market, We'll very often, um, you know, talk about all the reasons not to do that or, or be really hesitant to do that to protect us from this bias of the herd mentality, which leads to devastating financial outcomes when we succumb, succumb to it. Um, so just an example in, in terms of in practice with monitoring, uh, you know, bringing these these cognitive biases. And, and if we've done our assessment, even the individual financial psychology of that particular client or their money scripts, bringing those into play, since we've gathered that data, we've set the stage for the conversation. This is where we will bring in those elements in an ongoing relationship to, um, to the benefit of the client's financial health. One of the things when I read this part of the article, uh, one of my mentors, he talked about how he has every year, he has a bear market conversation with his clients. And prepping them for saying, you know, here's, we expect bear markets to happen. You know, here's what usually happens during them. And here's how we're going to respond. And not how we're going to respond. Um, it's much more being on the same side of the table with them. But at, that really seemed kind of like what you were talking about. Of, you know, how we talk about the stock market right now um, really has an impact on how our clients are going to respond when the market falls. It does. Yeah, you know, and, and part of that is the inoculation, right? So you're sort of cueing people to not be surprised by what's coming. Another way that that um, I think is a really powerful one to do it is that very often when we're talking about um, risk in a client portfolio, we'll talk about, you know, that historically this portfolio, you know, has had a 25% downside in a bear market, you know, um, which is very abstract information. And what we know about the human brain is that that is almost meaningless to the uh, parts of our brain that actually make decisions. Um, and so one of the ways to actually get a 
better, more accurate measure of uh, risk composure or risk tolerance. Um, it's it's actually probably more risk composure. Like, what are people actually going to do when the market tanks? Is very different, by the way, than what people say they will do, which is risk tolerance. Uh, is if you want to get a better ac- uh, estimate of that, make it more concrete. So one of the ways I'll do this is pull out you know monopoly money or actually real like hundred dollar bills, depending on what how much money that person has invested and how we want to um, visualize it. But in, so for example, let's say that I've got um, you know, um, 10, $100 bills on my desk. And that's how that represents how much money the client has invested. And so when I'm talking about a 20% potential downturn, I'll take, um, two of those hundred dollar bills and throw them in the garbage can. And I'll, I'll say, so this is what your investment is worth now. Um, and if you feel like you want to pick up the phone and call and yell at me and have, have me sell everything for you, then we probably shouldn't be investing in this type of portfolio. And just to make it really concrete and to put numbers to it versus abstract percentages, that is a really powerful way to um, both inoculate somebody against that market downturn, as well as get a more accurate measure of their risk tolerance. So one of the things that I, another thing that I I loved your paper um, and kind of how you approach this. And one of the things that I really appreciated about it was every step of the way you gave tools and resources where planners could get better um, at, at what they do and really, really help master their craft. Um, and so for pl- new planners who are listening to this or even very experienced planners, definitely read this article and maybe just pull out one thing that you can work on and one thing you can start implementing into your conversations. Um, would you guys have any other advice for the new planners who are listening to this podcast right now? Well, I just want to end on, uh, we talk about life planning uh, as well. And George Kinder He's uh, a founder of that, and he states, and it's something that uh, that that I've kind of abide by in terms of the way I work with clients. And he said, in, in planning, we discover a client's deepest and most profound goals through a process of structure and non-judgmental inquiry. And for me, that's a big piece of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Trying to research ways in which we can better work with our clients to get to know them and so they can get to know themselves better as well. And so just know I'm still learning and you're going to continue, continuously learn. But doing the financial, understanding the CFP board content, that's great. That That's the foundation. But to go a little bit further to extend, to continue to educate, to provide further value because uh, clearly Dr. Ponce and I have both worked with clients in this way. And it's just a tremendous uh, feeling when you are able to sit back, listen to the client, be able to offer some tools because they do, they really enjoy like to fill out surveys they they enjoy something different it's a different process and i can't tell you how many clients have said how wonderful the process has been and how neat and different it has been particularly if they've been with other planners and so it's a value add and so no you don't have to learn everything right away as you said hannah pick something start to research it if it piques your interest examine it further and know you can always reach out to myself. I'm sure you can always reach out to Brad and you have a whole host of, of individuals that you can reach out, particularly if, if you're involved with the FPA and the FPA activate forum on Facebook. Yeah. I would echo uh, Derek's 
um, sentiments and, and, you know, not to be afraid. And, and actually the article is a great resource to look in the reference section for things you can read. Um, and if you're not pursuing like additional formal education, I'd encourage you to pull out some of those resources. Many, many articles have been published in the journal of financial planning, actually. Um, there's a great one on, you know, solution focused therapy and, and listening techniques and skills. Um, and just as you said, Hannah too, pull out a skill, like, um, I'm going to read about resistance and I want to come up with one or two things I can do. I'm going to pay attention to it when I can see it. You know, this is sort of the assignment I'm giving myself this week. Um, and again, it's it's real easy to practice at home. You'll get some resistance in the first five minutes you walk in the door if you're in a normal relationship <laughs> or you have a teenager in the house. That's even better practice. Um, so just look for those opportunities to, to use some of these tools and techniques, not just in your practice, but in your life, um, because it'll it'll actually improve your life in general. Um, and so just looking, not not being afraid to take one of those one, two or one or two of those techniques and start utilizing them almost immediately is a great way to get started. Today's podcast is brought to you by Signature Investors. Signature is a national network of independent advisory firms committed to developing the next generation of financial advisors and creating sustainable businesses to serve clients and their families for years to come. Signature's advisor team model provides a blueprint for establishing a team, including various defined career paths from internships to lead advisor positions. To download this blueprint, visit adviceteams.com forward slash FPA and learn how to start building your team today. Many thanks to Dr. Brad Klontz and Derek Lawson for sharing their time, expertise, and research with us today. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please drop us a line and let us know what you thought of the show or if there are any topics that you'd love to see covered here on Your Financial Planner, Now What? Now, if you want to be a part of great conversations like these, be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals. All you have to do is click join, answer two short questions, and stay awesome. Thanks for listening.